All right, so tonight's teaching will be titled, What is the Righteous Requirement of the Law? What is the Righteous Requirement of the Law? So when you read throughout the scriptures, you read about the law, but in several places, particularly in the book of Romans, you read a phrase that says the righteous requirement of the law. So let's start with Romans 2.26. And let's just read the verse. And then I'm going to read some commentary about that particular verse and another verse in Romans. Romans 2.26 says, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? All right, let's look at Romans 8, verse 4. We'll start in verse 3 for context, and then we'll talk about it. Romans 8, 3 says, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh... God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Alright, so I want to read you a commentary about those two particular verses, and in particular that phrase, righteous requirement of the law, from a website called Jesus Plus Nothing. You know this is going to be good, don't you? With a, web, with a title of a website like that, you know it's going to be good. All right, so this is a question that was sent in. So this website, people send in questions, and then the moderator um, answers the question. All right, so the question was, if a person breaks one of the Ten Commandments after repenting for past sins and believing in Jesus Christ, will the person still go to heaven? Only if they what? Repent, right? Okay. All right, so here's the answer that was given. Yes, for God does not judge a person by the law once they have come to Christ. This is the wonderful news of the gospel, that Christians no longer stand before God as sinners under the law. We stand in grace. Okay, so we stand by grace. We're not saved by keeping the law. We're saved by grace. But is that statement fully true where it says God does not judge a person by the law once they have come to Christ? Because if you look in the book of Revelation, what does it say that we are judged for our what? Our works. works. The works are what's according to God's law. But let's continue. So in response to another question about the law, the same website, Jesus plus nothing. All right, so here's their answer to another question that was posed. Christians are no longer under the Mosaic law, but are under grace. So don't you love it when places refer to God's law as the Mosaic law? To try to make that, that distinction, that, that divide. Christians are no longer under the Mosaic law, but are under grace. But that doesn't mean that the general morality expressed in the law has changed. You're looking at me like, isn't that a contradiction? Yeah, okay, you're speaking out both sides of your mouth. It's either in effect or it's not. All right, continuing, it says, It means that what the law was powerless to do because of our sinful nature, God is now able to do when we walk in dependence upon Him. Now, when you read a phrase like that, 
Was the law able to save anybody? Was that its purpose? The purpose of the law was not to save people. It was to show people that they were sinful. It was to show them their sins. But what I'm gleaning from what this person is saying is there used to be one plan of salvation. It failed. God had to come up with a plan B, so he sent his only son for salvation purposes. And we all know that that's, that's baloney. God is now able to do when we walk in dependence on Him. All right, here we go. Have a look at Romans 8, 3 through 4, and you'll see that the end result of being under grace is still that the righteous requirements of, of the law are fulfilled, but they are fulfilled in us. By the Holy Spirit living and changing us, not by us trying our hardest to live in conformity to the law. So in other words, if you're saved and you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, the Holy Spirit is fulfilling the law on your behalf. Therefore, you don't have to. So, sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But is that, is that the, the correct understanding? Well, that's what we're going to find out tonight. So judging by this response, here is the Christian understanding of the law. We couldn't keep it perfectly, so God did away with it, and now we live by grace through Jesus Christ. That's the Christian understanding of the law. Because God got it wrong. Because God got, that's exact, that, the whole premise of that is that God got it wrong. Does God get anything wrong? No. So, was salvation a thing that just started 2,000 years ago with the death of Messiah on the cross? Well, we know that that's not true because Messiah was the lamb slain from when? The foundations of the world. This was always the plan. So what is the purpose of the law? How do we know how to live once we become saved? Once we are um, proclaiming the name of the Lord, we have to keep God's law. And that's exactly what it's meant by the re righteous requirement of the law. You're using the law for its correct purpose. Are you using it for salvation to be saved? Or are you using it as a way to live righteously before God? It's a path to righteousness. So, is it the correct understanding to believe that we couldn't keep it perfectly, God did away with it, so now we live through grace by Jesus Christ? Is that the correct understanding? If not, then what is the righteous requirement of the law? So let's go back to Romans chapter 2. Before you turn away from me, four. Okay. What is that word fulfilled in verse 4? That is plurao. That is plurao. Emphasis on uh-oh, because most people get it wrong because they think of fulfilled as it's done away with. We're going to come back to Romans 8 here in just a moment. So we'll go to Romans 2 first, because I want to, I want to lay a foundation with Romans 2, because there's a word that's going to be appearing in the, the successive verses here that I want, to, I want you to go ahead and have in your notes. So Romans 2.26, we read this earlier. It says, therefore... And any time a sentence starts with therefore, that means you're going to have to back up because there's some context that's missing. It says, therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirement of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? All right. So if you were to take that verse out of context, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So where does the context of this whole conversation of circumcision, uncircumcision, where does it all begin? Go back to verse 17 of chapter 2. So let's start back at verse 17 of Romans chapter 2. It says, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God. 
and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. So on the outside, these teachers had it looked like they had it all together. But what is Paul getting at right here? You might have it, you might have the outward appearance. You're putting on putting on the, the dog and pony show, but what's going on on the inside? Verse 21 says, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in God, you who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? Now, that particular phrase right there, I highlighted in my Bible. How do we dishonor God according to this little portion of the scripture? By breaking the law. So if we're not keeping God's holy instructions, his holy law, what are we doing? We are dishonoring God. Now that word dishonor is the Greek word atimazo, A-T-I-M-A-Z-O, atimazo, and it's Greek word 818. And you know how I like to point out words that really, and this is just the teacher in me, when you see a word that seems like it has too light of a meaning, there's usually an underlying word that means a little bit more than what's on the surface. So dishonor, yeah, okay, that's bad. But the word atimazo means to despise or to hold in contempt. So it's more than just doing it some disservice. You're holding it in contempt. You're despising it. So when you break God's law, what are you doing to God? You're holding God in contempt. Is that a good thing or is that a really, really, really bad thing of things you don't want to put on your list of things to do? You really don't want to do that. So that word dishonor, Greek word atimazo, means to despise or to hold in contempt. The word breaking in verse 23 where it says, you dishonor God through breaking the law. That is the Greek word parabasis, not parodesis, but parabasis, P-A-R-A-B-A-S-I-S, parabasis. That's Greek word 3847. And that means... If you look at the Strong's Concordance, it means a transgression of the law. Or, yes, that's what it means. It means a, so a breaking of God's law means a transgression of God's law. I want to look at the Hebrew underlying word because that will give you a better understanding of how it's really used. Um, that word parabasis, the Hebrew equivalent is the word sut, S-U-T, sut. And it's Hebrew word 2240, and it's used in Psalm 101, verse 3. So keep a finger here in Romans and go to Psalm 101, verse 3. And we'll play a game. See if you can find the word suit. 
Psalm 101, verse 3. So in Romans 2.23, it was translated as breaking. Alright, verse 3 of Psalm 101, verse 3. It says, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. So which word or phrase do you suppose is the word suit? That would be equivalent to breaking. Falling away. Yep fall away. So if you take out breaking in Romans 2.23 and put in the phrase falling away, do you dishonor God through falling away from the law? So any way you slice it or dice it is breaking God's law, is falling away from God's law, despising God's law, is that a good thing? That is a thing, that is a list, something you want to put on your list of bad things. You don't want to do that. Oh, and by the way, back in uh, Psalm 101 verse 3, where it says, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. That word wicked is Belial. 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 You know, the same Belial that says you shall what what accord do Messiah and Belial have with each other in 2 Corinthians 6.15? And what's the answer to that? Nothing. Not a thing. Not a thing. All right, let's go back to Romans because we're still building the context of verse 26. So Romans 2, 24. So because you dishonor God through breaking the law, verse 24 begins, for, tying it right back to verse 23, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. How is the name of God blasphemed among the Gentiles? Because the people who are supposed to be keeping God's law are not keeping God's law. So what does that mean about Gentiles? Are Gentiles supposed to be keeping God's law? They are absolutely supposed to be keeping God's law. Because how can God's name be blasphemed among the Gentiles if they were keeping the law? Matthew 28. Matthew 28. So what is the Great Commission? Is it to teach just love? Nope. Was that the only commandment? Love one another? Or was it to teach all things, all things which I have, all things whatsoever I've commanded you? All right, verse 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable, what? If you keep the law. Why is it profitable if you keep the law? Circumcision, physical circumcision, is a sign to God that you were going to what? Be obedient to the law. So what if you are physically circumcised and you do not keep the law? Your promise that to God is what? It's worthless. It's in vain. It's broken. And how does God feel about taking His name in vain? Yeah. But if you were a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Verse 26, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? I'm going to keep reading and come back to verse 26 so I don't stop the flow. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Verse 28, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. 
But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So what is it that God wants? Does God just want an outward show with no inward change? He wants circumcision of the heart. And we're going to be looking at scriptures here in a moment that talk about that's what God wants. That's what God requires. But let's look at back at verse 26. Verse 26, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law. I want you to underline righteous requirements because that is a word, one word in Greek. Righteous requirements. The word right, or the phrase righteous requirement is the Greek word dikaioma. Dikaioma. D-I-K-I-A-O-M-A. Dikaioma. Dikaioma. And it's Greek word 1345. Now, that word, we're going to look at several places where that word is used in the New Testament just to compare it right back to what we're reading here. That word, if you look at it in the Strong's, or in the Thayer's Greek lexicon actually, that word dikaioma is used in the Septuagint. And what is the Septuagint? The Greek translation of the Torah. It's the Greek translation of the, of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. So the word dikaioma is used in the Septuagint as an equivalent for the following Hebrew words. Chok and chukah, which is a statute. Chok is Hebrew word 2706. And you spell it chok. C-H-O-Q. Or anything that makes you go chok. Chukah. C-H-U-Q-A-H, which is Hebrew word 2708. And both of those are, one's just the male and one's the, um, the masculine, one's the feminine version of the words for statute. All right? The word is also an equivalent for mishpat. What is a mishpat? Judgment or justice. Just, judgment or justice. Mishpat is Hebrew word 4941. The word dikaioma is also used in the Septuagint for mitzvah. What is a mitzvah? It's a commandment. Mitzvah is the Hebrew word 4687. And it's also used in the Septuagint for the word pikudim. Now, are you all familiar with the word pikudim? Pikudim is a mandate of God. And in the plur, it's a plural word because the I, the I am ending indicates that it's plural. And in its, in its plural form, the word pikudim is collective for the whole law. So all of that, all of those words can be, are translated in the Septuagint for the Greek word dikaioma. So if we go back to Romans 2.26, if we were to take out righteous requirement, what word could we put in there that would make sense? You could put in commandment. You could put in judgment. You could put in what else? Anything that would do with the Torah. So the righteous requirement, this, the commandments of the law. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law, that's the whole gist of what this is getting down to, and does it for the right reason. Will not his circumcision be counted as circumcision? So that is a very powerful word 
But what is the righteous requirement of the law? Is it keeping the law to earn salvation? Or is it keeping the law because you are saved? Why would an uncircumcised man, a physically uncircumcised man, which you could also say a Gentile, why would they keep the law? Is it just because someone's twisting their wrist and making them do it? Or is it out of love? That's what we're going to find out as we go through this lesson. All right, go to Romans 8. We're going to look at some instances of that word, dikaioma. Romans 8. Romans 8. All right. We read 3 and 4 just a moment ago. So we're going to start in verse 1 just to get a running start and get the context. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Messiah Yeshua, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So does that mean, does that phrase mean come judgment day, you're going to like the outcome a whole lot better if you keep the commandments and you have faith and, and you walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Your judgment day is going to go a whole lot better. Psalm 19 verse 1. That's it. Happy is the man, right? Happy is the man. Verse 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Messiah Yeshua has made me free from the law of sin and death. Does it say Messiah made you free from the law? It says the law of sin and death. If you look back in Romans 7, it says that there are two different wars going on inside of you. There's your spirit man and your fleshly man. And the one that you let rule over you, that's the one you obey. Verse 3 says, For what the law, the Torah, could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Does it say the Torah was weak? No. No. We are weak. Because how many commandments do we have to keep perfectly in order to save ourselves? We would have to just keep all of them. And if we break one, according to the book of James, it's as if we've what? We've broken them all. And that that takes me right back to the end of Romans 7 that says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So if we cannot save ourselves through, through keeping God's commandments, what are we to do? That's where grace comes in. That's where it says, I thank God that through Yeshua Messiah, our, through Yeshua the Messiah, our Lord, so that with the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So... So Paul is saying, without Messiah, what hope do we have in salvation? None. None whatsoever. Verse 3, back in Romans 8, it says, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. So why why was Messiah sent to us? Was it because we were sinless and perfect and had no sin? It was because of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Doesn't that make you think of Romans 6, 1, just a few verses ago where he said, do we continue in sin that grace may abound? If Messiah came to condemn sin in the flesh, should we keep living in sin? No. Absolutely not. Verse 4 says, 
that the righteous requirement, that word righteous or that phrase righteous requirement, that's uh, dikaioma, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And as Wayne pointed out, that word fulfilled in verse 4 is from the Greek word plorao. Plorao. And I always I say emphasis on the uh-oh because of how it's translated in Matthew 5.17. So let's flip to Matthew 5.17 really quick and let's look at how that word fulfilled is used. And then we'll look at Romans 15.19 to see a really good definition for plorao. So Matthew 5.17. So this will give us a good idea of how Romans 8.4 uses that word fulfilled. Does it mean done away with? That the righteous requirement of the law might be done away with? No more to be seen? Matthew 5.17. These are Messiah's words. It says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to what? Fulfill. That's a Hebrew idiom. What does it mean to destroy the law? It means to incorrectly teach it. What was Paul railing on the people for back in Romans chapter 2? He said, you have not been teaching the law correctly. You're teaching it, but you're not keeping it. So you're incorrectly teaching the law. But I came, to, I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. To fulfill means to correctly teach it. To correctly teach the law. And that's what Paul is encouraging the people in the book of Romans to do. Correctly teach the law. Teach it for its correct purpose. Alright, go to Romans 15, 19 and we'll see a really good use of the word plurao. Romans 15, 19. Romans 15, 19 says, "...in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Messiah." That phrase, fully preached, in Romans 15, 19 is plurao. So, if we look back at Romans 8, 4, take out fulfilled and put in the phrase fully preached that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully preached in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. So if we're walking according to the Spirit and according to the ways of God, what's going to be reflected in our walk? But the commandments, the statutes, and judgments of God. Let's look at Luke chapter 1. Oh, I'm sorry. Stay back in Romans 8. I forgot to read the rest of what the rest of Romans 8. I was going to read to verse 8. So we'll go to Luke 1 in just a moment. So back in Romans 8, verse 5, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is life. Ah, mm -hmm. to be carnally minded is what? Death. Death. The wages of sin is death. death. So to be carnally minded means to be living in a life of sin. 
So what does that say to the doctrines that say you don't have to repent of your sins? But they didn't read Romans 6.22. They did not read Romans 6.22. They did not read Romans 8.5 or 8.6. It says to be carnally minded is death. If the wages of sin is death, to be carnally minded means you are living a life of sin. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. What is enmity? Hatred that separates. That reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2 that talks about Messiah came to end the enmity that has separated the, the Gentiles from the Christian or from the Jewish people. Is there supposed to be that middle wall of separation? Nope. That enmity that separates? No. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to what? The law of God. The law of God. Nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if you are walking carnally minded in sin, that means you are not subject to the law of God, therefore you cannot please Him. So if you are living a life of sin, and what is sin according to the Scripture? Lawlessness. Lawlessness. 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness. That's the definition. That's the very definition of sin. So if you are walking in a lifestyle characterized by sin, a life of iniquity, lawlessness, will you expect to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will you hear, depart from me, I never knew you? So, these are are some things that are very obvious in the Scripture, but that a lot of people want to ignore. So if the carnal mind, the sinful mind is enmity, or hatred that separates against God, that means it's not subject to the law of God. Did somebody have a question? Daniel, I just want to say, uh, what a good verse that goes along in verse 8 be Hebrews 12, 14. Hebrews 12, 14. Without holiness, no one will see God. Yep. Hebrews 12, 14. It says, pursue peace with all people. I thought it was just the people that were nice to you. What's it say? Pursue peace with all people. And holiness without which, what? No one will see the Lord. So without holiness, without living the life that God expects us to live, will anyone see Him? Nope. All right. Let's go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Thank you, Rachel. Luke chapter 1, verse 6. We're looking at another instance of the word dikaoma, which has been translated thus far as righteous requirement. But remember, I gave you this whole list of words that can also be equivalents of the word, or the phrase, or the word dikaoma. All right. Luke 1, 6. We just read this the other day. Talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth, it says, And they, talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth, were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. 
All right, which word do you think is the word dikaoma? Ordinances. Yep. So Elizabeth and Zechariah walked in the commandments and ordinances, that's dikaoma, blameless. So in Romans, the word was translated as righteous requirement. Here, it's translated as ordinances. So if we were to take out ordinances and put in righteous requirements... Here's how the verse would read. And they were both righteous before God, walking all the commandments and the righteous requirements of the Lord, blameless. So, were Zechariah and Elizabeth, were they sinful people? No, they were not. Their life was not characterized by sin, which is why this verse is here, because the next verse says they had no child. To be childless in those days was to be, people considered you to be cursed by God. So these, so Je- Zechariah and Elizabeth were walking in the commandments blameless, tamim. And that word righteous, it says they were both righteous before God. That is the Greek word dikaios, which is a related term to dikaioma. So dikaios, D-I-K-I-O-S, which is Greek word 1342. So... Do you get the idea that Zechariah and Elizabeth were living a very consecrated life before God? Yep. All right, Revelation 15.4. Revelation 15.4. Looking at another instance of the, of the word dikaoma. All right, so this is the uh, Song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Verse 4 says, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, and your judgments have been manifested. Which word do you suppose is dikaoma? Judgments. Judgments. Yep. Judgments. So the word judgments is the word dikaoma, the, the same word that's been translated as righteous requirement. So for your righteous requirements have been manifested. So think about when all of this takes place. Revelation 15 is taking place right before the bold judgments are being poured out. So we're in the tribulation period. So when are... Oh, I wanted to give you a word. Do you see the phrase, have been manifested? Your judgments have been manifested. All right, that is Greek word. Let's see if I can get this. Phanerao. Phanerao. It is funny. It is funny, Rao, isn't it? All right, Phanerao. I'll spell it. P-H-A-N-E-R-O-O. Phanerao. And that's Greek word 5319. So that, that phrase, have been manifested, is actually one Greek word, phanerao. All right, and phanerao means to make visible, to be plainly recognized, or thoroughly understood. So in the day of the Lord, God's statutes, commandments, and judgments will be fully understood. Think about all the things that we see happening. 
and all the things throughout the Scriptures that we see, all the commandments, all the statutes, all the judgments that we see, when will they be fully manifested and fully understood by all of us in the day of the Lord? Because there are certain commandments, certain judgments, certain things that we don't fully understand. Because remember, a lot of times a statute... I mean, do you understand fully like why you have to slaughter a red heifer on this particular place, put it in water, and it makes somebody clean? I mean, there are certain things that we don't understand now. Because what does the book of 1 Corinthians 13 say? We see through a glass darkly. We see through a mirror dimly. But then what? Face to face. So one of these days, we're going to understand the way things are meant to be understood. So all the judgments, all the, the things that God is pouring out in the tribulation pe- period will be fully understood, fully recognized in the day of the Lord. And also think about this. What's the cry of the martyrs under the, under the altar? How long, O Lord? Lord? When are they fully manifested, those judgments in the day of the Lord? Revelation 19.8. Look at one more instance of Dikaoma, and then we'll get to the teaching. This is all just foundational stuff. All right, Revelation 19.8. Think about the context of Revelation 19.8. Who is about to return? Messiah is about to return. Revelation 19.8. Let's start in 7 because verse 8 starts with and. Verse 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous act of the saints. Righteous acts. That's dikaoma. You're absolutely right. So righteous acts. So the word we've seen translated as righteous requirement, judgments, ordinances, here in Revelation 19.8 is translated as righteous acts. A righteous act is something that you do. It's an action. It's not just thinking about it, maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't do it. You're actually doing it. And we're going to get into that in just a little bit. It's an opposite of a lawless act. It's a funny thing you mentioned that. All right, do you see the word linen? Yep. All right. The word linen in Greek is the word businos. Businos. Spell it B-Y-S-S-I-N-O-S. And it's Greek word 1039. And that word businos is used just one chapter before in Revelation 18. So let's look back at Revelation 18.16 and see that word linen used. Now in Revelation 19.8, linen was used to describe what? The righteous acts of the saints. So those acts that the saints performed, were they done in pretense? No. No. Otherwise, they wouldn't be standing here getting ready to come back with the Lord, correct? Right. All right, Revelation 18. 18.16. What's being destroyed in Revelation 18? 
Babylon, spiritual Babylon. Verse 16 says, and, ala and saying, alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in what? Fine linen. Fine linen. Same word. Now, in Revelation 19, linen is used to describe the righteous acts of the saints. Why would linen, fine linen, be used here and in Revelation 19? What is spiritual Babylon? It's a false religious system. And it's a false religious system of the false Messiah that has an appearance of godliness. But what is it underneath? It's rotten to the core. It's rotten to the core. Because what is that false religious system? It's taken all of these religions, sprinkled a little bit of God on it, and said, this is, this is your religion right here. Too bad we don't see any religions like that today. We don't, do we, right? No. So that fault, those, false religious of the, those false religious systems of the world have an appearance of holiness, but will be destroyed at the second coming of the Lord. So all of these false religious systems that have this appearance of godliness, like I said, you take a little bit of paganism and you sprinkle some God on it and you've got what's known as syncretism. It has that appearance, but it's not. So, where do we see all of these false religious systems come crumbling down in the Old Testament? The book of Daniel. Book of Daniel chapter 2. I am not partial at all to that book. Not at all. Daniel 2, verses 44 and 45. So this is where we see the destruction of spiritual Babylon. Verse 44, Daniel 2, it says, And in the days of these kings, talking about the ten kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand, what? Forever. Verse 45, Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. What are all of those? Those are all of the kingdoms that have ruled over Israel. And what were they? Were they good godly kingdoms? No. No. So with the destruction of those kingdoms comes the destruction of idolatry. The great God has made known this to the king, what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. So, when spiritual Babylon in Revelation 18 is destroyed, what does that mean to these false religious systems? They're destroyed too. They're destroyed too. So, in Revelation 18 where it talks about this great city was clothed in fine linen. It had an appearance of holiness. But what was it underneath? Filth. Filthy. Why else would it be described as the, the great whore? So, we just looked at several different instances of the word dikaoma, the righteous act, the righteous requirements of the law. So, if, if God is requiring us to do something, 
What is it that God requires of us? Let's start at Psalm 40. Psalm 40. What does God require? What does the Lord require? This is not going to be an exhaustive list of everything that God requires. Because what does God expect you to do? To study and show yourself approved. But what I'm showing you is the Scriptures. Once we look at this collection of Scriptures of what God requires, you can begin to put the pieces together and see what exactly is it that God requires of me. And what is it that God requires of you? Psalm 40 verse 6 We'll read verses 6 through 8. It says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burn offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. So who are these words speaking about? This is speaking of Messiah. But back in verse 6, the word require at the very end of verse 6 is the the word sha'al. S-H-A apostrophe A-L. Sha'al. It's Hebrew word 7592. And it literally means to ask or to seek. So, burnt offering and sin offering you did not ask or did not seek. Did God command those things to be done. Did He command burnt offering and sin offering? Yes, He did. But does He desire those things? Does He want people to bring a burnt offering and a sin offering? Well, no. That means they would have sinned. So what is it that God wants you to do? He wants you to not sin in the first place. So it's these are not the things that God asks for. These are not the things that God desires of you. So, when God requires or asks or seeks for something, it's not for you to continue in sin. Because if you're bringing burnt offering and you're bringing sin offering, what does that imply? Continuing to sin. sin. So, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. What is it that God wants our ears to be opened to? His commandments, His statutes, His judgments, His words. To hear His words. No one has ever seen anybody when you're talking to them do this, right? That's usually what a kid does when they don't want to hear it. But God wants us to to not do the same to to His Word. To go and sin... No more. All right, Micah six eight. So these are just things that God requires. So He's not, He's requiring us to open our ears to stop sinning. That's one thing. Go to Micah chapter six. Micah chapter six verse eight. Mm-hmm. 
Let's look at verse 7 just to get... We'll start at verse 6. We'll just start at Micah 1. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Micah 6, 6. It says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the Most High? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Didn't we just read back in Psalm 40 that God is not pleased with a burnt offering? That's not what He wants. He, He commanded it. But does he want you to continually bring burn off? If you're continually bringing the burnt offering, that means you're still what? <laughs> you're still sinning. Verse 7, it says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Can anybody die in your place? No. no. Verse 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good. Can you just see Micah wagging his finger? He has shown you, O man, what is good. But what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? That would indicate that you're not walking in what? Sin. Sin. That would indicate a life that is pleasing unto God. One that does justly. One that does justice. One that loves mercy. And one that walks humbly with God. Humbly. Does that mean proud and arrogant? Look at me. Look at... No. One that walks in subjection and humility before God. That word require is not sha'al. It's the Hebrew word darash. D-A-R-A-S-H. Darash. Kind of like one of the levels of... um, interpretation of Scripture, the Darash. And that's Hebrew word 1875. And interestingly enough, this word, this verb, Darash, is an active participle. So does that mean God required once upon a time for us to do justly, to walk humbly, to do all these things, or does He expect us to continually walk in that way? He expects us to continually walk before Him in justice, in mercy, and humbly. Another way to say that is love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. That's it. So God wants a changed heart more than empty external actions. So a change in external actions will reflect or should reflect an internal change. Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10. In my, in my mind, or in my thinking, Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 16, is connected at the hip to Romans 2 that we just read about the righteous requirements of the law. So if you want to know what the righteous act, the righteous requirements of the law are, here they are. Romans or Deuteronomy 10, starting in verse 12. It says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? No, we'll stop. That word require is the is the word Sha'al, S-H-A apostrophe A-L. And Wayne, guess what form of the what verb form that is? Participle. It's a participle. So does that mean God used to require it? That didn't work. Now He's going to try something new. No. 
Or is it a continuous thing that God is requiring? Continuous thing. It's a continuous thing. Something that does not stop. So whenever you hear me point out a word is a, or a verb is a participle, that means it's a continuous ongoing action. It's not a once upon a time and then it stopped. It's ongoing. So when it says, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require? He still requires it today. It's ongoing. Yep. So he's requiring this. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? What is he requiring of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes, which I command you today for your good. So there were five different commands in there. He said, fear, walk, love, serve, keep. Those are the five things that God requires. That's it. If you do those things, you'll keep His commandments. You'll love the Lord. You'll walk uprightly before Him. You'll fear Him. And you'll serve Him. You won't serve other gods. So these are the things that God requires. Verse 14, it says, Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and He chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. Therefore, because God has chosen you, therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. The book of Deuteronomy mentions, does not mention circumcision of the flesh as the sign. What is it that Deuteronomy mentions consistently over and over? What is it God requires? Circumcision of the heart. The inward change. So if you look back at verses 12 through 14, or 12 through 13, we're going to look, the rest of the study is going to be about those five actions. The five requirements that God has. Does that mean to fear God? I'm just going to stand here and I'm just going to Tremble before God, is that what it means? Should we fear God? Absolutely, we should fear God. But is, the, is that the only essence of the word fear? If you, are, if, if you fear the Lord, you're going to obey Him. You're going to obey God. But you also have a certain fear of judgment day. Something you want to avoid. You want to be... A come judgment day, do you want to be in the smoking section or the non-smoking section? That's what you want to be thinking about. So that fear has a, well, a two-fold meaning that we'll talk about as the study goes on. But what we're going to start with, we're going to start looking at the word love. What? We're going to look at the word love. 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 Love and faith. They go together. Yep. Not... We, I could say like a horse and carriage, but that doesn't rhyme. So love and faith go together because if you have faith, that means you have love. 
If you have love, you have faith. The word love in Hebrew is the word ahav. A-H-A-V, and it's Hebrew word 157. And what's particularly interesting about the word ahav is that it's an action. It's an action. It's something that you have to show. So when you say love in English, it doesn't really carry quite a strong a connotation because when you think about movies and you think about love and it's, it's the puppy love, you know, the, the scenes in the movie, you know, where you see the hearts for the eyes, all that. Love in the Bible is demonstrated through action. Does God want you to say, Lord, I love you, and then you do nothing He says? He does not. He wants you to follow through. If you love the Lord and you have faith in Him, then your actions are going to follow suit. All right, let's start with Matthew 22. I know we're going to the New Testament, but I want you to focus that word love because when you see the word love, it's going to be translated from the Hebrew word ahav. So let's look at it not from the agape, the, the philias, all those Greek words. I want us to focus on the word ahav, the Hebrew underpinning. And I'm ashamed to admit, I did do that Bible study one time about the different words of love and the, the one, the John, if you love me, keep, you know, the Peter, do you love me? Do you love? Yes, I did that teaching a long time. Okay. Now that we have our confessions on tape. Now what was the original language of Hebrew? Of Matthew? Hebrew. Hebrew. Yeah. Hebrew. So let's look at it from a Hebrew perspective. Because the, these have been Hebrew-speaking Jews going around speaking Greek. No. That makes no sense. All right. Matthew 22, verses 34 through, th 34 through 40. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law, in the Torah? Yeshua said to him, now I want to, I want to stop for just a moment. Is he going to pick one of the big ten? So, the, the people who say we're only supposed to follow the Ten Commandments, or nine, the nine commandments, I want you to listen to what Yeshua said. Verse 37 says, Yeshua said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. What is that? That's the Ve'ahavta. That's Deuteronomy 6.5. So what's the greatest commandment in the, in the Torah? Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Verse 38, this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19.18. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So that means you can sum up the law and the prophets in these two commandments. I kind of think of it like, you ever seen a sign that has little signs hanging underneath it? You know, I kind of picture it like that. You've got two signs hanging up. You can hang any commandment under those two commandments. So if you love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, you're going to keep the Sabbath. You're not going to have any other gods before Him. 
If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to murder your neighbor. You're not going to covet their land. You're not going to commit adultery. So all the commandments can be summed up with those two big commandments. And what's the biggest one? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The Ve'ahavta. So if you think about that word love as an action, how do you love the Lord with all your heart? Do you, is it just a head knowledge? Is it like it just, oh Lord, I love you, but I'm not going to do a thing you tell me to do. You want to please Him, so it's going to be followed by actions. So your faith is, your, your love for Him is going to be demonstrated through your actions, through what you do. Alright, 1 John 4. 1 John 4. We're going to go back to the Old Testament in just a minute, but I wanted to show you that that concept of love, loving God, is consistent throughout the Scriptures. It doesn't matter if we look in the Old Testament. It doesn't matter if we look in the New Testament. That concept of love is going to be consistent. It's not going to be there was this one way of love. Now in the New Testament, there's these four different words which mean love. Then you just have to pick one. They all mean the word love is consistent. 1 John 4. Starting in verse 7. We're going to read 1 John 4, 7 through chapter 5, verse 5. Because it all just flows together. Verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. What does it mean to know God? According to John 17, verse 3. To have eternal life. So if you know God, you have eternal life. So everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Verse 8, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's where everybody gets that, that cherry-picked verse. But they pick that one part out of context. It says, He who does not love does not know God. So if you love God, that means God has manifested His love through you, and it says God is love. It means you know God. And to know God means to have eternal life. And if you love God, what are you going to do? You're going to obey Him. You're going to keep His commandments. It's an action. Verse 9, it says, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Now, does it say God manifested His love through up, to us so we can just keep sinning and, and He'll take us to heaven anyway? He sent His only begotten Son that there might be a way of salvation. But what do we have to do? We have to make the choice. The action is on us. We have to put legs on that action. We can't just sit by and say, well, I hope it happens. So, if we love God, it has to be through what we do, through our faith demonstrated through our actions. Verse 10, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice, the one that does away with the sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12, No one has seen God at any time. Talking about God the Father. God the Father is a spirit. 
For if we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. What book in the Old Testament says that God is our only Savior? Isaiah. Isaiah. So is, the, is John calling Yeshua God? Calling Him the Savior of the world? Verse 15, Whoever confesses that Yeshua is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. Abides in Him. Where do we read about we have to abide in Him? John 15. 15, It says if you do not abide in Him, what does He do with that part of the vine? He cuts it off. He doesn't just cut it off. What's He do with it? Cast it into the fire. Is that a veiled threat? No. I don't think that's a veiled threat at all. Verse 16. Oh, one more thing. To abide in Him, does that mean that it's a once upon a time thing? Why do you think all of these verbs are participles? Continuous actions. Because God wants us to continue doing them. Verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So if you abide in love, and what is the great commandment of the the Torah? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. So if you abide in love, what are you going to keep doing for God? You're going to keep loving God and obeying him. Verse 17, love has been perfected among us in this that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. What does that mean? We can stand before God knowing that we are saved. Because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Now John's about to get down to it. Whoever believes, and that word believes is a participle. It's a present participle. That means it is ongoing continuous action. So if you believe that Yeshua is the Messiah and He's born of God and everyone who, be- who loves Him also begot and everyone who loves Him who begot also loves Him who is begotten of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and what? Keep His, keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. So how do we love God? How do we show God that we love Him? Because in the, in, according to Messiah, the great commandment in the law was to love the Lord our God. It was the Ve'ahavta. How do we love God? 1 John 3, 5, 3 says, we keep His commandments. This is how we love God. This is how we show God through our actions that we love Him. And His commandments are not what? Burdensome. Burdensome. They're not the heavy yoke that so many people say that they are. They're not that heavy yoke. They're not that heavy burden. How many of you felt such a heavy yoke and burden to come to Shabbat tonight? 
Like you just had to drag yourself in here because it's just so horrible. It's such, a, it's such a burden to keep the Shabbat. Or what does the book of Isaiah say about if you call the, the Sabbath a delight, what, are you, what will he let you do? Right on the high hills, the high hills of Israel. Verse 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Yeshua is the Son of God? All present participles. So we have to continue believing that Yeshua is the Son of God, and we have to continue loving Him through our actions. All right, John 14. John 14, 15. You knew this was coming, didn't you? <laughs> Make a nice website, wouldn't it? <laughs> John 14, 15. So keeping that word ahav in our mind, that action. If you love me, keep my commandments. So these are the words of Messiah. So if you love me, keep my commandments. Skip down to verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them. <laughs> it, it, you mean it's not enough to just have the commandments? You have to actually do them? You have to actually keep them? Believe it, or Believe it or not. It is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23, Yeshua answered and said to him, talking about Judas, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. What is he unequivocally telling them? I am the prophet prophesied by Deuteronomy 18. What did that scripture say in Deuteronomy 18? It says, that prophet will speak the words of who? Will speak the words of the Lord. And if you don't hear those words, how will it be, how will it be for you on Judgment Day? Not good. good. Now the Ten Commandments are not called the Ten Commandments in Hebrew. They're called what? The Ten Words. So he keeps saying, my words, my words. And people go, well, that's not his commandments, but they are. Yeah. yeah, they are. Because a word is a saying, a something that comes out of the lips of God. And you're right, the ten devarim, the ten words. All right, go over to John 15, look at verse 10. We just talked in 1 John about abiding in Him. John 15.10 says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So what are the two if then? If you keep His commandments, what will you do? You will abide in His love. And what happens if you don't abide with Him? Cast into the fire. Cast into the fire. Cast into the fire. Verse 6. Yep, verse 6. If anyone does not abide in Me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So stay out of the smoking section. That's what we're trying to do. It's trying to keep as many people out of the smoking section as possible.
Exodus 20. Now let's get back to the Old Testament. So now that we've seen a flavor of what love is in the New Testament, do you think it's going to be something different when we go back and read in the Old Testament Scriptures? Absolutely not. Love was an action in the, in the New Testament. It's going to be an action in the Old Testament. Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. Exodus 24, verse 4 says, Exodus 20, verse 4 says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, as thousands of generations, to those who what? Love me and keep my commandments. So who does God show His mercy to? Those who hate Him or those who love Him? And those words love and keep are participles. So if we are loving God and keeping His commandments, what is He showing to us? Mercy. Mercy. This means loving kindness. Loving kindness. And when it says mercy for thousands of generations, if a generation is 40 years at the minimum, what is 40 times 1,000? That's 40,000. Have, have there been 40,000 years on this earth? Nope. No. So that means that His mercy, His loving kindness will extend into the Messianic kingdom and into eternity future. Will it stop after 40,000 years? Nope. His mercy? Absolutely not. So what is, what is God trying to tell us here? He's trying to tell us that He would rather give us His what? His mercy for those who keep His commandments. And you know what? Thousands of generations would take us even past the new covenant, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Yep, it would. Past what? Past the new covenant. Past the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah. The renewed covenant. The renewed covenant. So does that mean that mercy was before Messiah? No. Messiah's always been. Exactly. That's what I said. Mercy's always was mercy before Messiah. Or did it start with Messiah? It didn't start with Messiah. Because that's what a lot of people think is that grace and mercy didn't start until Jesus came on the scene. The law was until Jesus, and then Jesus was grace and mercy. But how long has grace and mercy been? Before the foundation. From the beginning, right? He made the right. He Can made I the... tell a short story? Yeah. We had a woman in our congregation in Alabama who was born in Germany. After meeting Hitler, her father sent her to the United States. And at the time she and I were talking, she was probably 90 years old or more. And she said, I've always been told that grace and mercy are only in the New Testament, that they don't exist in the Old Testament. Can you show me in the Old Testament where those words are used? And when she saw it, she could not believe it. Yeah, and it's right here in the Big Ten. Right here in the Big Ten. Mm. I mean, so you you got to see the scales just, just fall off. 
All right. Uh, um, Susie says, interesting that we see Yeshua's example of abiding. So if we abide, would it not be in following the same example? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Deuteronomy 11. Deuteronomy 11. Deuteronomy 11, verse 1. And then we're going to read verses 22 and 23. Deuteronomy 11, 1. It says, therefore, we just... So what's the therefore, therefore? If you look back at chapter 10, it's just where we started about the essence of the law, the righteous requirement of the law. So therefore, you shall love the Lord your God and keep His charge his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments whenever you feel like it. Always. What's that say? Always. Literally in the Hebrew, what's that? Charge? His charge. His The things he's asking you to do. Like when you charge somebody to do it, it's like I command you. I'm, I'm ordering you to do that. Strongly, it's a strong statement. Like, the things He wants you to do. So keep His charge, His statutes, His judgments, and His commandments always. That, fra- that word always is actually a Hebrew phrase. It's kol hayamim. All of the days. Kol hayamim. All of the days. K-O-L. That's kol. And then the next word, hayamim. H-A apostrophe. Y-A-M-I-M. Kol Hayamim. What is Kol Always. Always. So, yeah, literally it means all of the days. So, it doesn't sound as Englishy to say all of the days. But look at how much meaning you're losing when you say always. Today is one of the days. Right. Tomorrow's one. Yeah, tomorrow's one of the days. In the future. When you see all of the days, is it talking about just in this life? Or is it talking about in the life to come also? Forever. Forever. Yeah, it's a very Hebraic word of, way of saying in this life and the life to come. As long as there are days, that's, it, that's as long as we need to keep His commandments. Just as long as there are days, you know. So how long will there be days? Forever. So all of the days, always. Alright, go to verse 22 of chapter 11. It says, For if you carefully keep all of these commandments which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to hold fast to Him, Then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you, and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourself. Israel wasn't exactly the most rough and tumble group, were they? They had to have a little bit of help, but when God's on your side, God plus 
what is it? God plus one is a majority and they don't need the one. Right. So, I, I think I got that one right. But, back in verse 22, the phrase, for if you carefully keep, carefully keep, in Hebrew, that's known as an infinitive of emphasis. Literally, it says, keeping you shall keep. That's what it literally says in the Hebrew. But like I said, it doesn't sound very Englishy when you say it that way. So that's why you would, you would translate it as carefully keep. Now, again, the school teacher is coming out in me. Carefully keep. Doesn't that sound so mild? Just so, yeah, just casually. You shall carefully keep. But when you look at the underlying Hebrew, he's saying, keeping you shall keep. So it's Moses' way of saying, keep it. If you really keep it. If you really keep it. Keeping you shall keep. All of the commandments which I command you, then you will not have to worry about the threat of invasion. You will not have to worry about what am I going to do to take care of these bigger and more mightier nations than me? God will take care of it. But what's the precursor to all that? What, what has to come before keeping commandments? All of those things. The love has to come first. The love has to come first. Alright, Deuteronomy 13. So just flip the page or two. Depending on your Bible. Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 4. Still looking at the, the word love. Deuteronomy 13. It says, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know what? Whether you love love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. So this is the, oh, let's say a false prophet comes along and calls down fire from heaven and says, hey, go worship that guy over there. Revelation 13, right? If that happens, what is God saying? That's a test. I'm testing you to see, do you really love me or not? Or are you going to be blown away by whatever just comes along? In chapter 13, 1, that word wonder, at the very end of verse 1, do you see where it says he gives you a sign or a wonder? That word is mophate. M-O-P-H-E-T. Looks like Muppet or Muffet. M-O-P-H-E-T. Mophet. And it's Hebrew word 4159. And it comes from the word Yafa. What does Yafa mean? Or Yafe? It means beautiful. Like, like Yafa. Like Japa, Yafa. So... That wonder, that mofate, from the word yafa or yafe or however you want to pronounce it, means to be beautiful. It's going to be something that's not 
that's very pleasing to the eyes. So when that wonder comes to pass, is it going to be something that somebody's going to be like, Bleh! No. Or are they going to say, wow, that's wonderful, that's amazing. You know, it's, they're going to be caught up in just the, the sheer magnitude of it because it's going to be beautiful in their eyes. But what's God saying? Don't let it fool you. Don't let it fool you. Because what is it that God's doing? He's testing you to see, are you going to stay faithful to Him or not? Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 6. Now, before I read Deuteronomy 30, just understand that the context of Deuteronomy 30 is future. Has not happened yet. But I want you to listen to God's heart. What God desires of the people. Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, it says, Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you. It literally says, will come. When all of these things will come upon you. So that means it's, it hasn't happened yet. The blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey His voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord, will, the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers, and the Lord your God will what? Circumcise your heart. We read about that in Deuteronomy 10. And the heart of your descendants to what? The circumcision of the heart causes what? to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So that circumcision of the heart, that's what causes the love. So back to Romans 2. Back to Romans 2. Exactly. That righteous requirement of the law. Because what did it say? It said, he, he who is a Jew is not one outwardly, but one who is what? One inwardly. And circumcision is not that of the flesh, but that of the heart. That's it. Verses 15 through 20, Deuteronomy 30. So just skip down to verse 15. It says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments, His statutes, His judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But... If your heart turns away from you so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you today life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, 
that you may obey His voice and that you may cling to Him. For He is your life and the length of your days, that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. So what is it if that God desires of us? He desires us to love Him, but He also wants us to make a choice. What choice does He want us to make? To choose life. So if we love God, what are we choosing? We are choosing life. You only have two choices. And you know, this brings me back to the end of chapter 29. So look at 29.29 of Deuteronomy. 29.29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. That means there are things that God is not going to reveal to us because they're only for Him to know. But those things which are revealed to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So God reveals the things that He wants us to do through His Torah, through His law. And what does, he spend, what does Moses spend so much time in Deuteronomy 30 saying? It's not too hard for you to do this. Verse 11 of chapter 30, For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you. That word is neflate in Hebrew. That means it's not beyond your power. So, is the, is the Torah, is the law something that we cannot do? It's a heavy yoke that we cannot bear. God said, through Moses, it's not beyond your power. You can do it. So, He's giving us all of these things that we need in order to love Him in order to serve Him, but what do we have to do? We have to make a choice. We have to make the decision. Do we want to keep His commandments? Do we want to love Him? Or do we not? We have two choices. And like I said earlier, we've got smoking section, we've got non-smoking section. So we get to make the choice. And unfortunately, so many people are choosing the smoking section. So many people are choosing death. And, and they think they're choosing life. And that's, that's, another, that's another scary part about it. There's so many people that think that they're choosing life and they're choosing death because they're walking on that broad path. But, you know, and it all goes back to this too. People who choose death are demonstrating a lack of faith. Because if you truly believe that there is a hell, if there is a lake of fire, are you ever going to do anything to try to get there quicker? No. I mean, that would be a fool's errand. But if you've got faith and believe what God's Word says, you're going to live your life a little bit more righteously. You're going to live according to God's standards and according to His commandments. All right, let's go to Psalm 69. This will be the last that we go to tonight. So Psalm 69. Not trying to be a Debbie Downer, but at the same time, I want, to, I want us to be realistic here. You know, we've got so many people in our families, we've got so many people that we, that we meet on a daily basis that you can just tell they're just, they just don't even, they're not even given eternity a second thought. But if you live with eternity right there at the forefront of your mind, how are you going to live? You're going to live a little bit more closer to God. You're going to live 
a lot closer to God. You're going to live as righteously and upright as you can. And that's what we're wanting to show you tonight. How do you do that? This is not just, you know, oh, you ought to keep His commandments. You ought to keep, I'm, we want to show you what it means to keep His commandments. What is it God wants you to do? So that's what we're trying to teach you here tonight. All right. Psalm 69, verses 34 through 36. Psalm 69, 34 through 36. It says, Let heaven and earth praise Him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion. What is Zion? That's Jerusalem. That's prophetic Jerusalem. That means we're talking about Jerusalem in the Messianic kingdom. So will Jerusalem ever be destroyed? Not completely. It will never go away. It will be devastated, but will it be completely taken away never to come back again? Absolutely not. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah... That there may dwell there, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also, the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who what love his name shall dwell in it. So, if you want to dwell in that city, what do you have to do? You have to love him. So, what are what do we notice here? That's parallel: the descendants of his servants and those who love his name. Did Abraham love his name? Did Isaac love his name? Did Jacob love his name? So if we're descendants of his servants, did David love his name? So if we're descendants of his servants, what are we going to do? We're going to love his name as well. And And we're going to dwell there. So David wrote this. So what's David saying? I'm dwelling there. I'm a dwelling there. He probably didn't say I'm a, but he, he said, I'm going to dwell. Yeah, he didn't. Yeah. yeah, he was not from the south, so he did not say I'm a dwell there. But all right, this might be a good place to stop. So let's, let's stop for tonight. Tomorrow we'll pick up, still continuing to talk about love in Psalm 97, verse 10.